Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Stacey Stevenson. She, they joined Family Equality as the first Black Chief Executive Officer in 2021. Stacy, you are a trailblazing leader who was selected as one of Out Magazine's Out 100 list, a compilation of the year's most impactful and influential LGBTQ plus people in the fall of 2022. You, prior to joining Family Equity, worked in the corporate sector. You have a long history of senior roles in the defense technology and finance industries. And then you decided to turn your business acumen and your lived experience and your passion for this community and their families into your full-time role. I am super excited to have you on the show. And of course, we have a mutual friend, Joe, in common. Yes. You know, leave your mark is career advice. So I always start the show a little bit differently. But I think for you, I'd love to start with going from corporate into this realm, totally different from what you did before. What inspired you to make that change? And when you were thinking about this career move, did you ever think to yourself, like, if I leave corporate and I don't like this, what if I can't go back? Like, how did you decide to make that jump? Because I think when we talk about career pivots, that's always the scariest part. Yeah. I'll start with what inspired me. And maybe this was not so much the inspiration, but this was the catalyst, and that was COVID. I often call that moment in my life COVID clarity because we were stuck in the house. We were isolated. This was during the deep isolation and the quarantine. And it just gave me a lot of time to think about my career. I had spent so many years Elisa, building my career. I spent so many years proving that I was not this, this high school dropout. I dropped out of high school after getting pulled out of the closet wow. in rural, you know, South Texas, spending time on couches, working at McDonald's, building my way up. And now I'm here at Charles Schwab, big financial firm, and I'm at these executive tables and I'm here. This is my career. This is where I'm going to retire. This is everything. And then COVID happens and we're stuck at home and the thoughts start happening and you're not busy with all the busyness that we were all accustomed to. And I started thinking, is this really what I want to do with my life? And when I started having those thoughts, I wanted those thoughts to go away. But the universe kept knocking on my door saying, "Mm, 
there could be something else there. And I started thinking about, is this really how I'm going to spend the rest of my life? Is this what I really should be doing? Have I used the adversity that I've had in my life for good? And could I use it in a more impactful way? And those are the thoughts I started having. Then I said, you know what? I should move. And it's another serendipitous moment. The time that I was having these thoughts, family equality, they were looking for a new CEO. And I remember going to my wife saying, I think I'm going to apply for it. We had a friend who was a chief executive officer in a nonprofit. She said, oh, you're going to send it to her, right? I said, no, I think I'm going to do it. And she said, what are you talking about? So were you involved in family equality prior to that? I was on the mailing list because in 2019, they had a series called Out in Texas, and they interviewed queer families who were out living their lives with their families in the state of Texas. At least if you would have asked me in 2019, if I was going to be the CEO of family quality in 2021, I would have thought that you were I'm like, no, there's no way that's going to happen. But being on the mailing list, that's how I got the notification about the CEO position. I mean, that's kind of amazing because Lord knows we're on tons of mailing lists. <laughs> it doesn't always end up in a CEO role. Exactly. But okay, let's just go back for a second because going back to the idea of dropping out of high school. Can you share a little bit about what happened? And now, especially that you're a mom, how you view that experience in terms of your own parenting? What happened is that, you know, I never really had a successful career, if you will, in school because I was always the odd kid out. I was awkward. I lived in South Texas, but I was the awkward black girl. I was too white for the black kids and I was too black for the white kids. And so I call it social purgatory. I was like, where, where do I belong? And when I was about 16 or 17, the feelings that I had, that I've known I've always had about liking girls, those became stronger. I think as they do when you're a teenager. Sure. And I had my first girlfriend then, and I wrote her this lovely love note as you, we wrote notes back then. We didn't have text messaging. This is in 1992 or 91, something like that. And I thought that I put the note in my pocket so I could give it to her later. And I dropped the note <gasps> and a popular kid found the note. Oh my God. This is like dear Evan Hansen kind of, but go on. Yeah. I'm probably aging myself. It's, it's like an ABC after school special, right? I mean, <laughs> which by the way, they were always so great. <laughs> they were. And this person, he spread the news all over the school and I had no idea that I even dropped it at all really I didn't realize it so we come to school the next day and everyone's making fun of us and we're getting bullied the teachers knew the principal knew no one wanted to talk to us she was in a uh, cross-country program so when she went to the gym or the dressing room that day none of the girls wanted to dress around her it was just horrible and that compounded with the fact that her parents didn't took her out of the school so that was like oh I'm thinking that's the love of my life in high school, and then her parents removed her from the school because of this issue. And then I had no supports from the school, from my family. The news spread to my sister's middle school. It was a lot. And the day that I walked out of class, I was in government class, and a kid yelled a really mean word for a lesbian out at me. And the teacher pretended that they didn't hear. And I picked up my books and I walked out of the class. So that resulted in being this Black queer person in Texas who just dropped out of high school. And what do I do with that? And that's how it happened. And it was probably two or three years, maybe three years that I spent working at fast food restaurants, just surviving 
And when I was 21, I scraped up $70. And I said, I'm moving to Dallas, Texas. That's the big city. And I'm going to do something with my life. And the rest is history from moving there. And I have chills because joining Family Equality is such a full circle moment. I think just validating you as a person and everything and everything you're doing now to help other people and their families. When we think about your dropping out of high school experience and the bullying that you experienced, and now that you are a parent, how old are your kids? They're eight, eight-year-old twins. How do you prepare them for school? Because any age, there can be kids that are just so problematic and just horrible kids that doesn't matter if you are part of the community or you have a disability or whatever, they think that you wear ugly clothes. Like there's always a reason for someone to be mean. So how does your experience affect your parenting? Yeah. And you're right. Kids can be cruel. It doesn't matter what it is. They can be really cruel. The way that we protect or prepare rather our kids is that we often refer to it as a suit of armor that before they leave the doors of our home, that we have to arm them with resilience. We have to arm them with the reminder that you are worthy, that you are a kid with two moms, and there is nothing wrong with that. You are loved. You are beautiful. You are cared for. You are right. Everything is right with you. And don't let anyone tell you any different, because as soon as they leave our doors, the world is telling them something very different. Uh, kids with two parents typically stick out in these schools, even if you're in a really, you know, great neighborhood. So we armed them with a lot of the, what I call resilience and armor. So when those things come, you know, sometimes they're like Teflon, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they come home and there's a, we've had a really hard day and they're asking us, so why did they say that about my two moms? Why are they saying that that gay is not okay? Why are they saying those things? And we have to have those tough conversations and build them back up because unfortunately the children on the playground can really diminish their self-esteem and make them think that something's fundamentally wrong with them or their, their family structure. So it's a constant building all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's so important, but I also think it's, we can get into now where you live and what you did because, you know, I'm in New York city and so many kids, parents are same sex and it's like, you don't even think about it. Do you know what I mean? So tell us about Texas and your decision. Yeah. Texas is my home. It will always be my home. And I think as a person of color, as an LGBTQ plus person living in Texas, I believe you're taught to kind of tolerate the intolerance. You kind of just navigate through. This is what it is. You know, you're going to deal with some, you know, a-holes. You're going to deal with discrimination, but you sort of kind of just deal with it. And we had been dealing with it. When you become a parent, everything changes. It's like, I can deal with this, but whoa, wait, mama bear comes out. My children? Oh, yeah. Mama bear is a force to be reckoned with for sure. Yes, that's a whole different thing. And the more that we continue to do this navigating of, hey, we got to give you armor and we're going to deal with this. And the lady at the passport office was just a jerk to us because she kept saying, who's the dad? Who's the dad? And we, we went to the passport office to get the boys' passports renewed. And she kept asking us, who's the dad? And we said, no, they have two moms. No, who's the dad? But, oh, it's par for the course. This is what you deal with. I mean, let's just educate her. And you got to keep dealing with that. But then when your kids come home and say, the kids are saying this, I'm afraid. 
I'm hearing that our family could be hurt. When that happens, then all gloves are off. And I often say to people, I signed up for this fight. My kids did not. My wife did not, even though she's arm in arm with me. So we decided that it was time to leave Texas, this state and this place that had been home for so many years where we had grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and roots. We had to uproot ourselves and we moved to Washington, D.C. And it's not perfect. There's things going on at school that I hope that will help to influence. But we feel safer here. We feel safer here. But there's an impact. You lose your network. The grandparents, the aunts and the uncles and all those people that you could trust to babysit and all the things. We don't have it anymore. So we're having to rebuild ourselves and our family and our network and our structure here. But the most important thing is that we feel safe. I can walk down. And I do this because Cheryl, my wife, is in the office next door. I can walk down the street and hold her hand and not feel that someone's going to say something to me. That's important. And in Texas, was that a common practice? Walking down the street with holding her hand? No, having someone say something on the street. We wouldn't even do it unless we were in what's called the neighborhood. So if we were in the neighborhood, we would do it. We would feel safe. If we were in our neighborhood, not so much. Other places, we always felt that that was not the thing to do. And when we did do it, there were always looks and grimaces and, you know, so we just, we wouldn't even, wouldn't even do it. Wow. New York, I could just, when we're there, we're just, I mean, we're swinging hands down the street in New York. Listen, Stacy, we've got rats and garbage, but you can hold hands down the street. So, you know, you take your positives and your negatives. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so on the other day, I was coming out of an office and these people were screaming and I'm like, oh my God, what happened? They're like, it's a rat. I'm like, you're in New York. Like, are you a tourist? Like, why are you surprised? Of course there's rat. We have a rat bar. What do you mean? All right. Let's switch gears to you came from corporate and you went to nonprofit, but you had no nonprofit experience. No. How did you convince them that you knew what you were doing? And what was the response when they saw your resume? The response when the executive recruiters saw my resume and some of the search committee was, she doesn't have any nonprofit experience. And how is this going to work? They could see that I sat on a couple of nonprofit boards, but in terms of my 20-something year leadership career, there was no nonprofit experience there. So there was concern. And two ways I convinced them. One is I explained how I had been preparing for this position my entire life. And that corporate America was also part of this preparation, but my experience or my adversities were also part of this preparation. So that letter got me into the door. When I met with the search committee, one of the interviews was a, a presentation. And we all know that we love our slide decks in corporate America. So I created this fancy strategic plan for what I would do for the organization. And I brought that strategic experience that I learned for so many years in utilizing corporate America. And I merged it with the heart of a nonprofit. And I put that on the page and presented that to them. And I think that was, that was compelling. So that's really interesting because a lot of people don't want to do that because they don't want to give their ideas away before they sort of get this offer. So it's a catch-22, right? Maybe right. the deck actually makes you get the offer, which in this case it did. Yes, but I thought that too. I was like, this is a really good idea. And when I don't get the job and I've laid out this entire plan and program that they could easily lift 
and give to another candidate. Thank God I got the job. But yeah, I thought about that too. But the risk was worth it. And I knew because up against the other candidates who had long time nonprofit experience have been deeply entrenched in the work. And I had not, I had to bring something that was unique to the conversation. Listen, I think it's a really smart way to make yourself stand out. And also it shows that you're so passionate about getting the job. I mean, what better way to show how much you want a job than to literally put a strategy together? How many pages was it? I'm just curious. It was a four page presentation. And it started with, here are all the forces that are impacting your organization. We have external, you know, with like some of my SWOT analysis, we have external forces, we have internal forces. (laughs) Amazing. That's amazing. And then connecting that to their mission, to do that in a compelling way that was like, oh, wait, we do see where the business and the nonprofit can actually merge for good. And I think the board was ready for a different tone, different leadership style. So smart. When you think about your role now, family equality, what do you feel is the hardest part of your job? There's a couple of things. The first thing I'll say that's really hard about the job is you're not only doing the work of fighting for families and people who want to become parents and dealing with the attacks that they have to deal with. You're also attacked yourself. So there's this thing about being the protector and being the attack at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when we see all these bills that we have to deal with and the anti-LGBTQ plus legislation, we're out there fighting the good fight. At the same time, you're also a party to that hate too. And how do you balance by showing up for people and showing up for families and talking about it, saying all the things that we need to say so we can fight for and save our damn democracy? And at the same time, how does that weight fill on me as a queer person who's also under attack too? So there's a balancing act that my staff and I, everyone across the LGBTQ plus movement that you have to have because we're all people too. And we're not just, you know, having mics in the pulpits all the time. We're people, we're humans too. And that takes a toll sometimes. So I'd say that's the hardest. And I think the other hard part is ensuring that people know that there is an urgent need for the work that we do. I don't know if people understand sometimes what we're dealing with and how critical and urgent the need is for our work, just based on the attacks that we're seeing. They're large scale, big, serious, and we need to take it that way. Tell us a little bit about some of the main pillars of the work that you're doing there. Sure. So I'll start with Family Equality is a 44-year-old organization. We were founded in 1979 at the first Gay Lesbian March on Washington by a group of gay dads who were fighting for their right to be parents. This was in the 70s. So you're a gay person trying to parent a child. They had children in different sex marriages before, and they left those marriages at some point, but they still wanted to parent their children, and they weren't being given those rights. They were, you know, access to their kids. They were denied all of that. And 40-something years later, we are still doing the work to ensure that LGBTQ plus people can create their families. And when when we choose, not only create families, but also sustain our families. And the main pillars of our work are protecting the right to marry. We know it's protected now, but it was very clear with uh, Justice Thomas's comments last year when Roe was overturned that we should revisit. Ensuring that LGBTQ plus 
people who have children in school that are kids are protected. It's called associational discrimination. So kids like mine who get bullied because they have two moms. So ensuring that they have an experience at school where they don't get bullied. Child welfare. And the reason that that's important because there's 400,000 children who go through the foster care system every year. Many of them age out. LGBTQ plus people that actually adopt these children. But there are laws that are still preventing us from doing so. We are not only ensuring that the child welfare system is one that is friendly for LGBTQ plus children who are there, but also that we as a community can adopt without barriers. And I'll say the last thing is family law and families and ensuring that we are establishing our parentage rights and that our rights as parents are not being revoked. There was a case in Oklahoma where that just happened. So those are the main pillars of our work, marriage, school, child welfare, and and family law. So important. I would love to understand, especially with your work being so important, but also so difficult, and it's kind of like this constant, where do we have to go to battle today? Mm -hmm. What's your mindset like every day? How do you mentally prepare for like the work itself in this type of role? Yeah. The way that I look at it is I long to be liberated. I long to be free. And when you know that you're not, and when you know that there's places and spaces that you're not accepted, when you know that you are not fully and wholly accepted as the person that you are in this country, that there are people who are still trying to take even more of your freedoms away, that's the mindset that I have. And because of that, then it motivates the hell out of me to do whatever I need to do to become free, to ensure that my children are free, to ensure that other LGBTQ plus people feel free, to understand that, you know, 50% of LGBTQ plus children have seriously considered suicide because they don't feel free. And that's the mindset is that this want and desire of full liberation, I don't know what that feels like. And that's the mindset is that's, Great. Let's go. Let's do the work of freedom. Let's do the work of liberation. But I I think about that every day because we don't have it yet. And I'll keep working until we do. But that's the mindset. That's so inspiring. Tell us a little bit about the Family Equity and Justice Program that you're excited about. Really excited about the Family Equity and Justice Program. The Family Equity and Justice Program, it's never been done before. It's a survey. It's a program that we're going to do but we're going to go out to rural communities. And some of those may be on the ground or Zoom, but we're going to go to the rural communities and we're going to survey LGBTQ plus families who are mostly BIPOC, who live at or below the poverty line. And we're going to survey them on what are their needs? What do you need? What are you not getting? What's your experience? And the reason we're doing that is we can't have full freedom and liberation if we don't bring everybody along. And oftentimes, even within our community, we forget that there are people who are not sitting at this table like you and I are. We forget that there are LGBTQ plus people who live in rural Texas, rural Louisiana, rural Mississippi, and their lives are held. We're going to serve these people, find out what they need, and then build better programming. I would believe that some of these folks, they're not interested in going to your fancy gala. They may not be or or may be out of reach. We do a lot of those things. So how do we create more inclusive programming and more inclusive vision and scope and mission. If we're the queer organization for all families, we can't be that if we're not touching all families. 
So that is why I'm so excited about that because I lived in poverty before. I was one of those folks living there. So to be able to, to survey people and say, tell me what your needs are so we can build programming that is aligned to you and your resources and what your family needs so we can help you, you know, why not? And you know what's great is that we have corporate sponsors who that's a benefit of being for corporate America because I could speak both languages. We have corporate sponsors who have signed on to say, we know that we're underserving this community too. So after you have that data set, can you give that to us so we can also figure out how we can better serve this community that's been oftentimes forgotten? That's amazing. Let's talk about advocacy in just the normal sector, right? I think it's really important because a lot of people, I think, choose silence, right? So I think if you're in an environment where it's just easier to be quiet, a lot of people will default to that. But, you know, this is a little bit of a different episode for Leave Your Mark just because so much of Leave Your Mark is career advice. But I think it's equally as interesting to hear from people like you who have like a very different type of job than maybe some of the other people who come on the show. And what I love to do in every episode is give tactical advice where people who are listening can walk away and be like, you know what? I can actually do that. I can do that at work. I can do that in my community. Maybe this doesn't affect me directly, but like I can be an ally. So what would you tell people? People are often scared that they'll be canceled if they say something. And I totally understand that because that is a scary place to be. And I think what it comes down to as maybe crass as it could sound is that either way you're going to be canceled. And what I mean by that is by being silent, we cancel ourselves. By being silent, we know that we are not saying what is on our heart and what is in our soul. So by being silent, you cancel yourself. And I think there's an impact to that. So do you want them to cancel you, which could happen? Or do you want to cancel your soul or do you want to cancel yourself? I think it's really that simple, not that it's easy. But either way, you're going to be canceled. You really are. And when we don't speak up, when we don't say what's on our minds, when we don't use our voices, and we stay silent, we do cancel something that's inside of us that we know that we need to say. And a lot of times, the folks that I really need to speak up for us are people who don't even look like me, people who are not even LGBTQ+, people who have privilege. And oftentimes, people don't understand that. They don't understand how much power and privilege that they have, too. And I often tell my friends who are or our allies or who are not BIPOC is, if you don't mind, please use your privilege to help me. Please use your privilege to help further our cause, because sometimes they won't listen to me, but they'll listen to you. And I'll just say right now in this country, boy, does a lot of stuff need to be said now. It needs to be said. It needs to be said in the corporate sector. In the nonprofit sector, we're doing the thing. But if we could get corporations, if we could get our corporate partners, if we could get corporate voices... It's where I came from to say more, to do more, that would move the needle. They can't stay silent. Such insightful feedback. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Your work is obviously difficult. You're up against a lot. When you have a series of days where you feel like you're just not breaking through, like nothing is sort of coming into place, you feel like you're not moving the needle. How do you reset yourself to start again? Like, I understand this is passionate work, but just from like a tactical perspective, how do you reset yourself? Yeah, I have those days. Those days come and, you know, my corporate mindset 
was work, 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 even when I was not having the breakthroughs, work, keep going, keep climbing. And I've noticed in this type of work, I can't do that because, as I mentioned before, you are not only protecting, but you're also kind of being attacked at the same time. I've learned to walk away. I've learned to have reset days. I've learned, you know, two things. One, if I'm having that type of day coming in on a Monday, I've plugged in mindful Mondays, four hours on Monday without anything, not a meeting, not anything. And it says mindful Monday and it's a four hour block. And that is the space. And can I use that space to get into the other space that I need to get into to do the work or can I not? If not, then I need to walk away and have a day of rest. And what's interesting is that we implemented days of rest, family quality. I stole it from Twitter. But we have a monthly day of rest and taking that day of rest and knowing that it's okay. I used to feel so guilty when I was in corporate America, just taking time off or not being at a six or seven o'clock meeting. Can't do that. Cannot do that. And I have also learned as I get older is that I can't show up for my family or myself if I'm that drained. And I've had those moments where I just, mama can't show up today. Mama's so tired. You know, honey, no date nights. I'm so tired. That doesn't work for the family. So learning to walk away and also utilizing that mindful and daytime and being disciplined about it too. So I know this is going to be like a dumb question. What do you do in the four hour block of time? Sometimes it's catching up on a to-do list. It's looking at all the things to do and it's prioritizing. It's the, what's the term? Ruthless prioritization. Like, what do I really need to be doing? And what do I need to take off my plate? Or I call it what's above the line and what's below the line. If there's something below the line, just don't do it. I think we all have a habit, especially maybe tight days of we need our hands and everything. Mm-hmm. What's the stuff that I just need to take off of my plate? And what are the three or four things that I need to focus on? So I do that. Sometimes it's just reflection. Reflection, reading, working out, going in like, I'm just going to go spend some time longer than I usually do at the gym. It's just trying to rebuild and reflect and and getting my mind right and knowing that I'm having a day. I love this idea of mindful Monday. Okay. So I normally end the show with the same question, but before I get to that, my book on brand, which came out in April is all about personal branding and building your personal brand. So if I were going to ask you to describe your personal brand in three words, what would you say? I would say authentic, badass, love, and soulful. And the people around you, whether they're family, friends, people you work with, what would they say is your superpower? Connecting the dots connecting the dots, being able to zoom out and see patterns and connect those dots to create a collective vision or cohesive vision. That's a great superpower to have. And the final question is always, how do you want to leave your mark? Which I know the answer, but we'll do it more specifically for you. If you had to envision the pinnacle of your work at Family Equity, and there is a headline on Stacey Stevenson, what would it say? 
she lived from her soul and left it in print. Amazing. Stacey, it's so great to have you on. This was so great. This was fun. So fun, always fun. But you know, I just want to say that the work that you're doing is so important. And I'm so happy that I have, you know, a platform to share it. So thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Leave Your Mark. If you want more career advice or tips on personal branding, make sure to pick up a copy of my new book on brand, shape your narrative, share your vision, shift their perception. Want to land your dream job or kill it in your career? Don't forget about my first book, Leave Your Mark. If you want me to speak at your company or at an offsite, or if you need consulting services, please go to alizalick.com. I would love to connect with you there and on social media. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.